So I am back with you on a Sunday evening doing another podcast. Uh, it's your host Anthony Smith on A Train Sports Talk Podcast, and I'm supposed to be wrapping up my college football preview of at least the AAC. But some of you in the sports world, and you're keeping up with it, you know that a lot has happened as far as today. If you are keeping up with with the Pac-12. The group of players in the Pac-12 have done so. Without much preliminaries, we're just going to just get on into this. And the first question that comes to mind is: Could CFB, which is college football players, follow some NFL players and opt out over virus concerns? So let's see what the ESPN panel thinks about this. Yesterday, well, we saw so many NFL players opting out of the season, many of them leaving a lot of money on the table. What thought did you have as, as regards college football? Well, seeing that and, and knowing that, you know, the NFL has done a pretty good job because they've had to negotiate with the NFLPA in terms of making the environment for NFL players safe. Think about if you're a college player where, you know, there isn't, there hasn't been that negotiation. There hasn't been an advocate for you doing that. And so now just put yourself in the position of being a 19-year-old college football player that's got to walk into a coach's office and say, hey, you know what, coach? I just don't feel safe. I, I'm not at high risk. I just I don't feel safe doing that. And what type of reaction you think you might get? Sure, there might be some coaches that are understanding and they'll put their arm around you. But there'll be plenty of other coaches that would really start to put pressure on that that you know that young player. And so I think when you look at that, this is a really, I, I feel, kind of a dangerous situation uh, and probably scary situation to be in if you are a young college football player that isn't really sure about playing. Heather, what are you hearing about that side of this? Well, no athlete scholarship is going to be in jeopardy if they don't want to play. Let's start there. But that could create a backlog, right? What I'm, what I'm hearing is that student athletes want to play. I think that, that that's very important. And I think that's one of the reasons that you're seeing a decrease in positive tests around campuses. It's because they get the message. The student athletes are trying what they, what they can do to follow those CDC guidelines and the athletic guidelines on campus. But you know what? I'm also told there's nothing a coach can do in terms of when, it, when an athlete says, you know, I don't want to go to practice because I'm afraid of the coronavirus. How do you know that they're saying that and they just don't want to go to practice at 6 a.m.? So there's also that issue as well. What do you think, Paul? Well, let me from Paul. I'll I think, quickly uh, get Paul. Most of, the, most of the coaches are impervious to, to this virus. I know that sounds crass, but their job is to win college football games. And, I, and on campuses where you've had outbreaks of 35 or 40 or 50 uh, positive testing. The coaches are saying we have to play. Uh, none of these programs uh, with those outbreaks have been shut down, Greeny, so I, I don't think college football head coaches uh, are really paying much attention to what their players are saying. They may have to at some point, but not yet. On a day... So there you have that. So now we move into a story where it talks about football. Historians talk about the game in a previous pandemic college and the nfl is wrestling with how to play amid the coronavirus a look into the pages of history reveals some of the same questions surrounding travel restrictions and the desire to play just over a century ago the h1n1 virus 
called the Spanish Flu when it broke out in 1918. It's estimated to have infected 500 million people worldwide with 657,000 deaths in the United States, according to information from the CDC. Longtime Pro Football Hall of Fame historian Joe Horrigan and curator and historian at the College Football Hall of Fame Jeremy Swick have spent time over the past several months looking back at football during the 1918 flu pandemic. Something that struck me right away, that the circumstances, a time of social unrest, a health emergency like most had never seen, and people trying to navigate all that, Horrigan 68 said. You see, there is a sense of people wanting, really wanting, to try to get back to normal, and that sports, even in those early days of pro football, pro football was going to try to have a role in that. Horrigan, who retired in June 2019 after 42 years with the Pro Football Hall of Fame, is considering and leading is considered the leading professional football historian. He says the impact of the Spanish flu on sports included a list of cancellations and schedule changes, such as the Cubs and Red Sox ending an abbreviated baseball season by playing the World Series in September 1918, a series that featured a young left-handed pitcher named Babe Ruth for the Red Sox. Players, coaches, and umpires wore masks during the game. Pro football in 1918, the NFL wasn't formally organized until 1920, was largely a a regional affair in the Midwest Rust Belt with an irregular quilt of locally organized teams. Most of those teams elected not to play or were prevented from playing by local guidelines as men were being pulled into the military for World War I, as well as the effects of the pandemic. There also were travel restrictions and limitations on crowds. There were just a few professional teams that played limited schedules, including in the Ohio League, which included what would be one of the NFL's original teams, the Dayton Triangles, who won the title in the abbreviated 1918 season. But if you're looking for a record of professional football in 1918, the Hall of Fame lists no 1918 entry in its historical timeline. You just see the difficulty teams were having because of the difficulties the communities they were in were having, Oregon said. College football was king at that time, but many schools did not play in 1918, while others elected to play a limited schedule of three to four games. Because of the restrictions, few games were played until late October or early November. A lot of teams that were able to play were able to play because perhaps many of their players had not yet shipped out. World War I was a relatively short war for those in the United States when compared to, say, World War II. So the cycle of men leaving and returning was different, Swick said. There were a lot of travel restrictions in place, however, for the war, and the virus, so it became a local affair. ESPN senior writer Ivan Mazel, whose personal library includes about 300 books on college football, said information about the 1918 season is hard to come by. You see a lot of the information, the war, and the pandemic are treated largely as one thing in the discussion, 
about college football, Mazel said. And the fact is, they were. And the fact is, they were. They were very separate things, but you also see the pandemic isn't really talked about in much detail. But the difference in who played, how many games they played, how the season looked for each school, I think that's something we could see in the season to come. The Army-Navy game was not played in 1918. For example, in the Missouri Valley Conference, which included Missouri, Nebraska, and Kansas at the time, canceled its conference season. LSU did not play football in 1918 and later honored its now-named Silent Season a century later in 2018 with a commemorative uniform. Newt Rockney, in his first year as the Notre Dame head coach, saw his team's travel restricted because of the flu outbreak and the war. The Fighting Irish finished the season 3-1-2. At one point, Notre Dame played a game against Wabash that had been scheduled the same day. But President Woodrow Wilson, who later cited a need to improve moral in the country, ordered football teams to be created at military posts around the nation, and those teams played some of college football's powers in 1918. John Heisman's Georgia Tech team played almost a full schedule. It went 6-1 and one that season. Tech surpassed 100 points three times with six games at their home field, including games against the Georgia 11th Cavalry and Camp Gordon, a camp built in Georgia for World War I that was closed in 1920. The NCAA did, did exist then, so there were guidelines for schools to follow to play, but I'm certain nobody was checking ID on all the players from those military teams, Swick said. It's certainly possible there may have been some older players, players who might have been the age of those on professional teams at that time. There there were likely a variety of players in some of those games. A photograph that has resurfaced plenty in recent months taken by a Tech student during the 1918 season shows fans at a game wearing masks. The only way game Georgia Tech played that year was November 23rd at Pitt, which was scheduled, which was coached by Glenn Pop Warner. Pitt won 32-0, and reports from the time list a crowd of about 30,000 at Forbes Field. That win had many declare Pitt as the national champion. I would say in looking back at it, You see, the teams that succeeded were simply more fortunate, Swick said. It's a virus. It didn't pick and choose then and know who was coaching the team or how organized you were or how much talent you had or if more of your players had simply not shipped out to war yet. It was far more of a roll of a dice thing about who won and lost. Pro football took the uncertainty of the schedule, travel, and sacrity of players as a sign it needed to be better organized. And in looking back, you see a sense of the pandemic as World War I was ending, having somewhat of a role in everything that was happening in the country, having a role to push people to organize in pro football, Oregon said. 
that the need for organization for teams for players could clearly be seen by those reaching trying to make pro football a reality as they tried to navigate everything that was going on. And in 1920, just two years later, the NFL is born. Swick said he has found references to some college campuses using correspondence to hold classes, so students were not allowed on campuses for part of the 1918 school year. It's hard to tell fully what it was like because the culture sometimes wasn't to save things, Swick said. Some things are lost in someone's attic right now or have been thrown into a dump long ago. But you see players where the students weren't on campus, but there were attempts to have school. So that impacted the ability for some to play sports, including college football, beyond simply having many able-bodied males fighting a war. To get a sense of life and the reach of pro football in those pre-NFL years, Horgan has minded newspaper has mined newspaper clippings to see how people grapple with the desire to return to games and gatherings as the virus was active. A notice about school closures in an October 1918 issue of the Lansing, Michigan State Journal said teachers were trying to find the best way to limit their contact with students as some of them have declined to go into homes where there are serious cases in influenza and pneumonia fearing they might contract a disease. A notice in Ransom, Kansas record in December 1918 offered considerable pressure has been brought to persuade the health board to remove the ban from public gatherings in view of the approaching holiday season that the people may indulge in Christmas tree festivities and other social entertainments and that people would be allowed to return to some gatherings if there wasn't a serious turn in the course of the prevailing pandemic scourge. Said Horgan, those are the kinds of cities, especially in Ohio, Pennsylvania, Indiana, Michigan, in that part of the country where pro football is operating. And while large public gatherings were banned at times, and the football season, college and pro was largely canceled, you do see these attempts to play. And in looking at it, you really have to believe that with the aftermath of war, of the pandemic, those events put people in a position to try to reorganize things, and the NFL is one of the things that came out of it. So, there you see how the country in 1918 had to deal with a pandemic. So, upon my return, we will dive into some other issues. So, stay tuned. I'll be back after a word from my sponsor. College football players have never had more leverage than they do right now as the sport tries to play a season amid a global pandemic. And a group of Pac-12 players are taking a historic step to try to advocate 
for themselves and everyone in that league. Uh, they are, are choosing to opt out of all preseason activities and games if the league doesn't meet a set of demands that ranges from compensation to health and safety during the pandemic and also a racial injustice component that's very important to the group. Uh, you know, the league, in a statement to ESPN, the Pac-12 saying they have not heard from this group. Their athletic departments have yet to hear from this group. But uh, the group will go public with their statements uh, likely in the next day or so. Again, they're asking for a lot here. So that's something to watch for. Everything from compensation to racial injustice to protection. So certainly some ambitious demands. But this is a historic step for this group, which is trying to advocate for themselves at a very opportune time. So there you have some comments regarding the Pac-12. And these are some very interesting times in which we are facing to where a lot is even filtered into the sports world. So let's just get right on into this because uh, it says the Pac-12 football players' letter. Most important takeaways from an unprecedented step. A group of Pac-12 football players wrote a letter to the conference threatening to opt out of fall camp and gain participation unless the league meets its demands with regard to safety during the coronavirus pandemic as well as economic and social issues. In the letter, a piece in the Players' Tribune titled, Hashtag We Are United. The players are asking for safety precautions amid the pandemic, medical insurance for six years after eligibility ends, a permanent civic engagement task force to address social injustice issues, and for the league to distribute 50% of each sport's total conference revenue evenly among athletes in their respective sports. So what does this mean for college football in the broader college sports landscape? Well, let's see. Student athletes having their say. Student athletes feel as though they have a voice and should have a seat at the table now. In the past, they had to go along with the status quo and in some cases were afraid to speak up about issues they faced on campus or within their own athletic departments. There has been a strong sense of unity in how the student athletes feel they should have a say in how they are treated. It's not what they're demanding, but that they're speaking up for themselves and saying they want fair treatment and that they no longer want to feel as though their best interests aren't looked after. Some of the demands in the letter are lofty, but the essence of the letter, that they feel they're not being treated properly and that they deserve more, shows this is a new age in college athletics. Historic moment. The organization of this push and the specificity in some demands underscore how this is a historic moment for college athletes advocating for themselves. These Pac-12 players are using a moment in which they and others have never had more leverage as the sport tries to shoehorn in a football season amid a global pandemic. The key will be which demands or areas are prioritized over others.
For example, for example, guaranteed medical coverage six years after eligibility expires is incredibly important and achievable. So are the items around name, image, and likeness and flexibility with transferring and return to school depending on professional sports drafts. The Pac-12 already is the most progressive Power 5 conference, so the smart demands around racial justice also seems doable. The 50-50 split obviously will be the most contentious, especially when the players are asking for sports that are guaranteed financial losers to be restored, but it's clear a lot of thought and planning went into putting this together. It will be interesting to see if groups from other leagues will follow. Timing is right for the movement. The racial justice movement in college football still has plenty of momentum and is the motivating factor by the players of the Pac-12. While there are many other demands listed, they are prefaced with frustration over racial injustice in the sport. Players threatening not to play is usually the only power they possess over any school or the NCAA, and doing it on the united front is going to get them some of what they want. It's going to be a negotiation. They will likely not get everything that they want because the NCAA and its member schools are used to running around these issues. A lot of conversation with this is going to surround player compensation, but the motivation behind it, racial justice, stands out to me. And if there was ever a time for change, it's in today's climate, and the players are playing it right by asking for just about everything in this first round of negotiations. A long time coming. This is the moment we've long anticipated when it comes to players realizing the power of their collective and it will force a reckoning in college sports. While it's at once jarring and bold, the Pac-12 players' demand are also a reaction to years of plotting, incremental change, and it has become clear players aren't going to wait to see what's next. This offseason, we've seen athletes steer some important changes, including using their platforms to get names of racist figures stripped from campus buildings. In another state, in another case, as Texas, a similar push led to a series of new promises and a prominent Booster's family asked for the removal of his name from the field in order to honor legends Earl Campbell and Ricky Williams instead. The Pac-12 movement is large enough that it can't be ignored either by member schools or other conferences. We've heard all season how crucial college football is to athletic department budgets. So have the players who have comprised its labor force. This is a watershed moment for college sports. No more playing nice. My main takeaway is that Kane Coulter and Northwestern were playing nice. When they attempted to unionize in 2014-15, 
they followed the rules that existed for them and made what could only be described as demands. Long-term health care, assurances that their educational rights wouldn't be derailed by an injury, more reasonable transfer rules, more effective assistance in raising graduation rates, more expansive and realistic scholarship amounts, etc. They only indirectly even address name, image, and likeness. But the union got stomped down. They were treated as usurpers just looking for money, and six and a half years after their union attempt began, the only one of them the only one of their demands that has been reasonably addressed is cost of attendance. The way the world tends to work when a population that has been held back as nicely and doesn't get anywhere, the people eventually come back in force. The Pac-12 players list has a lot more force and potentially a large number of players involved. The can can only be kicked down. The can can only be kicked down the road for so long. Health should be priority. I'd certainly echo the push toward unionization, which is at the heart of what's happening here. But in the micro sense, the letter from Pac-12 player shows a distinct concern with the motivations of leadership. Are the power brokers pushing to play because they think it's safe or because they need the revenue? Players clearly have concerns. Players clearly have concerns. It's the latter. Yes, there's ample reason for players to band together on a number of critical issues from revenue sharing to name, image, and likeness. But the timing of this focus is a clear spotlight on a lack of trust that the schools, conferences, and the NCAA really have player health at the top of their priority list. So while the discussions around paying players may be a far bigger battle, both in terms of politics and public relations, the push for better health and safety oversight is one that the players can and should win. Once that domino falls, the next steps get a lot easier. So now the question is, what took so long? It's a wonder, really, why it took so long to reach this boiling point. For more than 50 years, the power structure in college foot and college sports has stayed roughly the same. It wasn't until 2018 that the transfer portal came along and we saw players gaining once gained an ounce of tangible leverage. Even then, the deck was stacked against them in favor of wealthy coaches and administrators. Think about it. Five years later, those same players couldn't eat unlimited meals and snacks on campus without running afoul of regulations. Snacks. And it's with all that in mind that I wonder why in the world the NCAA and the Power Five conferences didn't get out in front of this decades ago. Couldn't they see that giving a little on the fairy tale of amateurism might save themselves big in the long run? After all, why fight so hard against name, image, and likeness when it was such an easy win? It's literally 
going to cost them nothing, and yet untold millions were spent fighting it. They cried about a slippery slope when, in fact, they were the ones who created those conditions by not listening, by not compromising, by not giving an inch. They put themselves in the position of one day having players demand what must feel like a mile. I will continue this story in a minute. Power in Players' Words I'm grateful that we are finally hearing the true voices of student-athletes. Voices that have been silenced by schools and conferences with heavy restrictions on when they can talk, how they can talk, and what they should talk about. Media access has become more and more limited with each passing year all while restrictions on social media use have grown, robbing players of the ability to truly speak up for themselves. Schools may view it as protecting them, but really, they were just protecting themselves. This spring awakening has finally shown players they have voices that are meaningful, that have power, that can create change. Florida State defensive tackle Marvin Wilson, who used social media to create change in his own locker room, told me he never really thought anyone cared what he had to say. That was until his tweet went viral on social media, allowing him to implement a long list of ideas he created his freshman year, not only to his team, but also to the community around him. These demands put forth by the Pac-12 players are not just a knee-jerk reaction to the current situation. They are well thought out, well researched, well intentioned, and impressive in their scope. There is power in their words, in their courage, and conviction. Silence is complicity, and that can no longer be an option. The Pac-12 should sit up and listen. It's about time we all did. Creating Leverage Through Unity The idea that a full academic scholarship and the assorted add-ons that come with playing major Division I football qualifies as fair market value in 2020 is patently absurd. Not with the money these teams generate. Not when coaches are often the most highly paid state employees. If Pac-12 Commissioner Larry Scott, whose tenure is widely mocked, deserves more than $5 million annually, there is no way to justify that star athletes, the ones who people actually pay to watch, should be compensated peanuts in comparison. But Scott negotiated this, ridiculously, this ridiculous salary so good for him. He used the leverage that his, at his disposal to improve his own personal situation. Players haven't been able to use leverage in the same way for maraud reasons. Age, the short window they have in college, etc. But the Pac-12 players have shown as a collective they now understand the type of unified effort it will take 
to generate change. It's too early to say with any degree of certainty how this will play out. But just about everything outlined in their letter is long overdue. So, that's a situation we would definitely be keeping our eyes on. And could the Pac-12 end up being a floodgate of things to come for other conferences? We see that some of these conferences, there's four power five conferences already that have said conference only games. So now it's just a matter what's the Big 12 going to do? Because I can guarantee you there's not going to be any out of conference games. That's my take on this. But now with what's going on with the Pac-12, you know other conferences are watching, and it's just a matter of time before another group of players in another high-profile conference speak up and have their list of demands. So right now it's starting with the Pac-12. But at some point it's going to trickle to the other Power 5 conferences. You mark my words on that. Anyway, this is A-Train Sports Talk Podcast. I'm glad you tuned into it. I'm glad you're listening. If you want to contribute to this podcast, there's, three, there's a way you can do it. Get Check out my link. Go to my link. Uh, download the app. And you can support this podcast on a monthly basis. In increments of 99 cents a month. $4.99 a month or $9.99 a month. And this is what this does. This helps me get my material that I need to give you a well-informed podcast. And I will also be looking at businesses that I happen to frequent. I'm going to be looking at, I'm going to go ahead and drop some names here. I'm in Wichita, Kansas. For those of you who may be listening to this podcast and other places, but there are places like Royalty Cuts, Chuck's Barbershop, All Prep, No Play. Those just name a few. So, if you want to support this podcast, it's real simple. Just go to my link, and whatever you decide to do, it will be greatly appreciated. I hope you enjoy the content. And tomorrow, for sure, I promise you, I will get back into my college preview. But it was just some things that I've seen and I want to share with you. So I hope you enjoyed the content of this particular podcast. So until the next time, take care of yourself, each other, and y'all have a blessed evening. This is A-Train Sports Talk Podcast, your host, Anthony Smith. I'm signing out.